including all kinds of relationships together inside of the wisdom of God. He intends to rebuild our relationships the way that God wants them built and in which His power and love can thrive inside of our lives and then that all of us together would be realigned with the kingdom of God. So yes, all things in Christ is a big thought, but it is also intended to be day-to-day. It's intended to be enormously personal and intimate for each and every one of us, and it is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes that happen in our lives. So this morning, the uniting of all things in Christ brings us to the story of the reconciliation of parents and children's and children's and children and bond servants and masters. Now remember, these kinds of passages are directed at real people in real households in real relationships. When we read these things, the end of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6, we are tempted to isolate these topics, to pull them out of the book or out of their original context and draw their themes and their lessons out of them, and we can certainly do that, but let's make sure this morning to get the full force and thrust of what Paul is saying about our relationships with each other in Jesus Christ, that we hear this as a letter that was written to real people who are sitting next to each other in the congregation. So let's make sure we keep our attention on real people listening to this. Guys, sometimes God is the biggest in the smallest things. Our day-to-day lives with each other. How God is able to put those things together and manage healing and brokenness and bring reconciliation and beauty and how God is able to give us the strength to endure. Sometimes God is the biggest and the smallest things and often He is the most powerful in the most ordinary of things. We think of the power and the glory of God, and again, our minds go immediately to these great, big, sweeping issues that we want changed and fixed, and sure enough, God can do that, but God is at work in the lives of people sitting next to each other in the congregation that hears this letter read. So here are some of the intensely real and personal things that we're going to deal with this morning, children and parents. So Paul is going to speak of what is right for children to do, and he's going to use that language, what's right for children to do and why. And he's going to talk to fathers specifically, what we understand in the biblical context, parents, about their responsibility to their children before God. And just like the matter of wives and husbands, this relationship between parents and children is lived out in Christ. Paul continues to use that language throughout everything that he says this morning. So all of us in those relationships are intended to live them out in the Lord. So children and parents. And then he's going to talk about bondservants or slaves, depending on the translation that you're reading, and masters. So when we speak of bondservants and masters, while this larger issue of slaves and masters still hangs over our heads in a lot of significant ways, again, we need to listen to Paul's conversation with the Ephesians because when this letter is originally read... It is read to a group of people, a room full of brand new Christians that contains both masters and slaves. So what's going on? What is Paul addressing? What is Paul trying to fix when he, when he writes this letter and it's read to people that has rooms full of both of these individuals? And again, both are expected to live with each other under Christ. And how things are changed because of that is incredible. 
We're expected to live in God's kingdom, coming to unity in Jesus Christ. And so the gospel, as it's proclaimed and as it is actually lived out among our lives, is going to have profound consequences for them and then for us as well. So let's start reading Ephesians chapter 6. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And all the parents said, I hear you. (laughs) Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you, you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Children, honor, or again, depending on your translation, children, honor or obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is really interesting language that Paul uses. So it's very straightforward. When Paul speaks to children, this is straightforwardly a command to kids, to children. Children of all ages, actually, honor your parents. Obey your parents. Now, while we know that there are extreme circumstances where we play with the edges of that, let's make sure we understand the foundation of this passage, what Paul's trying to put across, and why this is so important to Paul, the New Testament. It's critical to the Old Testament. It's critical to the health and strength of our family lives that children have this kind of relationship toward their parents, and parents have this kind of relationship toward their children, this, this relationship of honor and respect and obedience and this relationship of raising up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is intensely important for Paul in the New Testament. So it says, children, honor or obey your parents. And parents, discipline and instruct your children. And all of this is done, Right? under the eyes of Jesus Christ. So again, this is part of how God has built us. This is what God intends for us. This is what the Holy Spirit is going to enable us to do inside of our homes if we point ourselves in this direction, give the Holy Spirit this kind of access to our lives. So it is a child's rightful obedience and respect to parents. And when children do this, This actually becomes a spirit-filled activity that enacts the love of Christ inside of a home. So this is actually one of the ways in which children grant access in the home to the Holy Spirit, to the work of Jesus Christ. This rightful relationship of obedience and respect and honor is part of how children love the Lord is by doing this with their parents. This is part of how children grant access to the Holy Spirit inside of their lives and inside of the home. And Paul says this obedience is right. Again, it's about as straightforward as it could possibly be. It is the moral and the correct thing for children to do. And there's at least a couple of reasons why that Paul deals with in this passage, why it's the right thing for children to do. First of all, it is the natural order of things. Now, that may sound pretty <clears throat> straightforward and pretty simplistic, 
But not everyone believes that it is the natural order of things for parents, or excuse me, for children to honor and obey their parents and be raised by their parents. And we need to understand that God has actually built things so that this works the way it's supposed to. So we spoke when we talk about wives and husbands that God built that unit at the very beginning of humanity to be the foundational structure for society of husband and wife. And here we learn it's not just husband and wife, but it's mom and dad and kids. God builds this as the fundamental unit, as the building block for the rest of society. And all of it is done right with Christ in our eyes. So there is a role for mom and dad, and there's a role for children inside of us that God ordains. And there's a role for extended family as well. We know the role that grandparents and grandkids play in this. We know that there's a role for aunts and uncles and cousins to play inside of this. God has ordained it so that there is strength in the work of the Holy Spirit in the home like this. So Scripture calls children a gift from the Lord. Some of you know this passage well. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. So it is a gift that God gives to many families. So children are a gift, but parents also know that children are also sinners in need of grace, right? They're a gift that God gives, but they're sinners in need of grace. One of the the conceptual flaws inside of our dominant culture right now is that children are perfect blank slates and it's society that corrupts them and turns them into sinners. I'm here to let you in on a little bit of, of insider trading here. Every child is born with the same hard wiring towards sin that you and I have. It's all there and it begins to manifest itself. And they are sinners in need of grace. They're sinners in need of the work of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ inside of their homes and lives. And guys, notice this as Paul fleshes this out for us. The wisdom, the discipline, and the instruction of Christ-following parents is part of the grace that they are given to God. This is a major part of how God is at work inside of the lives of children to come to know Him, to learn what discipline is, to learn what instruction is, to learn what the wisdom of the Lord is, right, is this grace given to them in God-honoring parents. So, guys, notice this. There is power. There is legitimate power, divine power, psychological power, sociological power. There is power in learning that we are part of this divinely ordered structure in which we receive from our parents when we are young and then we give of the wisdom of the Lord to those who are the next generation. God has ordained this and there's power in this cycle. It is intended by God, right, that this would happen inside of families. The Apostle Paul says something really interesting to to one of the young pastors that he mentors and who ends up in the city of Ephesus as one of their early pastors and leaders, Timothy. And in the very last book that the Apostle Paul writes, he's writing these instructions to Timothy as a young pastor, and and Paul just loves Timothy's mom and grandma. 
And he says early in 2 Timothy, pay attention to the things that you were given, something great in your mother and your grandmother. Pay attention to the things that they taught you. A little later in the book in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul says this, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And we already know he's learned it from his mother's knee, his grandmother's knee, and then from Paul and everyone else in Paul's team. Knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is a beautiful example. This is the fruit of the tree of the kind of family life that Paul is talking about. So Paul's an old man, and he's on his way to be beheaded. He's in prison. Paul knows he may or may not make it through this next imprisonment. And when he writes to Timothy, he writes in these intensely personal tones, and he doesn't have to fix what Timothy didn't have. What he can do is he can encourage Timothy. You learn this as a kid. You learn this as you grew up. You learn this as you engaged with the rest of the body, and you were mentored by me and Epaphroditus and Luke and Mark. You were mentored by all of this. Don't forget that. And continue in the things that you have learned. It's actually this beautiful, intensely personal moment. He's able to draw on two generations now of encouragement that Timothy has received. And what beauty and power there can be when our homes are like this even guys where there is brokenness, and there's brokenness in every home, even where there is that, the work of God can be like this inside of our homes. This is what Paul desires. This is what Scripture desires. It's right for children to do this because it is the natural order of things. It's the way God has created it. And then secondly, it's the right thing to do because it is God's law for us. It's specifically part of the Ten Commandments. That's what Paul quotes here in this passage. Honor your father and mother for, <clears throat> for you know, this is right in the Lord, and you, if you do this, you'll be able to live long in the land. It is God's law for us. So in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, is where that verse of Scripture is. God commands children to honor their parents because it will result in blessing. He says, it will go well for you and your family, and you will live long inside of the land. This truth of parents and kids like this is part of the larger truth of a thriving society. Guys, this is genuine grace and privilege given to kids. Children raised in healthy homes are given this kind of advantage in life. That God designed the kids to grow in the shadow of mom and dad as much as possible, to receive from them in healthy ways everything that God wants to pour into their lives. And as kids learn to interact well with mothers and fathers and mother figures and father figures, when they learn to interact well with those, part of what's being formed inside of them is they're learning how to interact well with God. This is part of how this interaction works. It's teaching them to hear from Jesus Christ. It's teaching them to relate to their Father God. It's teaching them to relate to Jesus and all that He is. So children themselves are even expected by Paul to be responsible for this in the Lord, he says. As much as it makes sense to them at every age and stage, 
They are responsible as kids. We are responsible as kids. We still have parents and grandparents with us. To do it as unto the Lord, just as everyone else is in, in these passages. So it's part of how children show their love as they honor and obey their parents. It's part of how they show their love to Christ. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 2 and 3, they reiterate this notion of children honoring their parents, but it does it, Leviticus does it in this really interesting context. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father. It's in the context of God's holiness. It's in the context of you and me being given this command, just as our God is holy, we should be holy. And then the very next thing God lists, is that every one of you needs to honor your mother and your father. So this is a powerful part of what God intends so the lives of his people. So children, honor your father and mother. This is right in the Lord. It will go well for you. And then he says specifically, and fathers, Don't provoke your children to anger. He says, but instead bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Again, Paul talking to actual people, actual brand new Christians inside of that congregation. Part of what he may be doing by addressing fathers specifically is the kind of distance that would have been typical in that extremely patriarchal culture where mothers and servants and household slaves raised kids and dads didn't. But now those people in those households and those homes are now sitting in a congregation to become followers of Jesus Christ. And so so Paul uh, signals out fathers specifically. Don't provoke them to anger. There's a powerful role for fathers to fill in the raising of their kids. Don't neglect that. Don't think you have nothing to do with the raising of your kids because there's something powerful for you to do. Then we understand this in the rest of the scriptural context that this is something parents are intended to do. Don't provoke them to anger. Don't neglect them. Don't, let, don't separate them from your love and compassion, mom, but raise them in the, in the instruction, the discipline of the Lord. So children need both. Now, this is important for us to hear because our culture wants to replace God's design for family with just about anything and everything else. It is just as good to replace a mom and dad with any other mixture of people that you want. They can adopt kids and everything is going to be exactly the same. And guys, first of all, we know biblically that just isn't true. Psychologically, that just isn't true. And if you want to get technically, the science tells us that is not true. God's design is not just God's law. It's good for us. And it's good for all of us. It's good for your neighbors when kids are raised in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. I ran across a really interesting quote this week. A poet by the name of, an American poet by the name of Robert Bly, who lived during the 1960s. As he was watching the riots of the 1960s, he wrote in one of his, his books, he said his first reaction when he watched the riots was this, they're all out there looking for their fathers. That was his reaction. Watching the riots in the streets, he said, they're all out there, and they're looking for their fathers. 
there is significant breakdown that happens when we neglect, when we play down the kind of role that fathers can play, the kind of role that only mothers can play. Culture wants to pull that apart. Scripture says what Paul is doing, what the Old Testament does, it says we can't separate that. We need that to be as close, as intense, and as full of the Holy Spirit as it can possibly be. Guys, there are plenty of political movements in our culture today that are trying to wedge themselves in the middle of parents and kids. They're trying to pull kids out from their responsibility to obey their parents and they're trying to pull parents away from their responsibility to raise their kids in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And guys, every time you see that, every time you notice that, that reject it with every ounce of strength that you have because the Holy Spirit is trying to put that together, that there is this role that kids play in the home and it's actually the access to the Holy Spirit inside of their lives. There is this role that moms and dads play inside of the home and it's the access to the Holy Spirit inside of that home. And God, Excuse me, God is building something beautiful and powerful. Paul comes out of this Old Testament tradition. Many of the Christians in Ephesus come out of this Old Testament tradition that <clears throat> intensely desires parents to raise their kids in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. One of the most significant passages about this comes out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear all of this. I'm going to read this. It's, it's rather long, but it's important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. God wants it written on your character. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts on your house and on your gates. Is there any sense in that passage of Scripture where Paul says, well, there are times in your lives where there's really not responsibility to raise your kids to know God. All of that is a way of saying everything you do. Everything that's around you, when you wake up, when you go to bed, when you walk to the store, when you take a walk with your kids, when you do this, when you go on vacation, I want you talking about God. I want you raising your kids to know who Jesus Christ is. And that first responsibility belongs in the home and to mom and dad. And look, guys, a healthy church can and should support that, but it can't replace that. We have a healthy and vibrant youth group, and we have a great kids' ministry, and I know all that's been disrupted with, with the pandemic and so forth, but we have this healthy ministry to families inside of this church, but we can't raise kids. We can support the raising of kids, right? But we can't become surrogate mothers and fathers for kids. A good education can support what happens inside of the home, but cannot replace what should be happening inside of the home, right? I was reminded of this as I was talking with uh, Pastor Ryan this week about this passage of Scripture and so forth. Um, how many of you have been a part of one of our baby dedication ceremonies? I, I, I love the way that we do it. 
Because we'll talk with parents and we'll, we'll read some scripture and we'll talk about this gift that God gives families and the responsibility that God gives families with kids. And I'll turn to the parents and I'll ask them, is it your intention to raise this child to, to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ as, as their Savior? And I ask the parents to respond with, we will. And then I turn around and I face the congregation and I ask you guys, is it your intention to help these families, to raise these kids, to know and love Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? And I ask you guys to say, we will. And then we as a spiritual family, we've then committed to each other to help each other through this process. Because it's not easy. It's not easy. And it really does take a spiritual family. It really does take us to help make this happen. Something struck me a few days ago that, um, I've talked to Heather a little bit about this as well, something struck me a few days ago that I want to give to you. I feel like I need to give to you guys. I want you guys to, to hear this in the spirit in which it is given. I've heard a lot of people say something, and I've heard a lot of parents say this. I've heard a lot of grandparents say this. Heather and I have said this particular thing um, as we think about our nieces and nephews and the magnificent kids and young adults and youth that we have inside of this church. So when I say this, this is not condemnation. I'm not condemning down on anybody. I'm telling you, you're not alone. If you've said this, you are not alone. I have heard over and over again, I am really worried about what my kids are going to face when they become adults, right? We see what's going on around us. We have no clue what's around the corner, how things might just change radically by this fall or in the next four years or whatever it is. And we say these kinds of things. I'm really concerned about what's going to happen to my kids and grandkids coming down the pike. Here's what struck me. God raises generations on purpose. Every generation is raised up on purpose by God to meet the challenges of what we don't yet know is coming, but God knows is coming. Guys, with every wave that comes out of the ocean and onto land, God already has His army mustered on the shore. Your kids are not being born. They're not going to grow into adulthood at the wrong time. They're being born and raised into adulthood at exactly God's right time. At exactly God's right time. I asked for permission uh, to tell this story, and I'm glad I got permission to tell this story. A few of us had the opportunity to be at um, uh, Matt Steiger's uh, latest promotion as a Marine, and his promoting officer there, as he uh, sort of gave his speech, he started his speech with, with, uh, with my brother Matt by saying this. He said, Matt is of a generation of Marines that was born in blood. And that phrase struck me. And I knew it, but I hadn't really put it together. That there was this generation of servicemen and women that as soon as they were commissioned, they were thrown straight into the battlefield in the war on terror. And that's what they spent the next 15, 20 years doing. They were born into blood. It was a generation of servicemen and women who were born for battle. Sometimes, God raises a generation that is born for battle. We might be on the edge of that generation right now. 
we might be watching some of those kids walk among us right now. But the way this is going to work, the way this is going to work, kids, young adults, you have to know Jesus Christ. You can't rely on your parents' relationship with Christ. You can't rely on this church's relationship with Christ. You can't rely on my relationship with Christ. You have to know Christ. It has to be yours. You have to own it. You have to grow in it. You have to spend time in it. Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, aunt and uncle, you have to learn how to raise your kids in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. This has to be on purpose. This has to be on purpose. And God knows what he's doing with every generation he raises. We don't know what's on the other side of whatever wave is ready to hit the shore. God does. And he's already preparing the people who will meet it. He is already preparing the people who will meet it. Mom and dad, be encouraged. Be encouraged. And let's work together. Let's work together for a generation of people raised up to do the work of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Paul continues to talk to these households, and I want to get this in this morning as well. He speaks now in verse 5 to, as my text calls it, bondservants and masters. Some of your texts say slaves and masters, and we'll talk about that this morning. Verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. The word bondservant here in the Greek, doulos, is the word that is used both for those who would fit in the category of bondservant, who have been bonded to a master for economic reasons or even for a short period of time, or at least there's some sort of end to their service to this master, and it is the word that would be used in the Roman Empire for those who were just slaves. When we read a passage of Scripture like this, as with the others, we are tempted mentally to go straight to the big issue of slavery itself and the slavery that is in our past. But again, remember, when this letter is, a, is originally read, it is read to people who are sitting next to each other in a congregation, masters and slaves, husbands and wives, parents and children. Real people, real situations. What is Paul doing? What is he trying to get to happen in the lives of these people? Inside of the Roman world, slavery was different than how you and I remember it inside of our cultural history. Slavery for them was not specifically racial or ethnic. It was the result of Roman conquest or families who hired out other members of their families, especially their kids, for economic reasons. Abraham Lincoln was an indentured servant when he was a boy. Did you know that? He was actually in indentured servitude when he was a boy. But it was slavery nonetheless. 
Some scholars believe that as many as 35% of everybody in the Roman Empire was a slave of one sort or another. It was a slave economy. The vast majority of empires in tribal and national systems in human history have been slave economies. And so it was with the Roman Empire as well. And so instead of addressing the institutional issue, Paul doesn't write this letter to Caesar. He writes this letter to you and to me and to these Christians in Ephesus. What Paul does is he talks to Christians who are meeting together in worship in both of these categories. And what Paul says is that both of them are called to act as if they are living under the eyes of Christ. And this is powerful. This has been the theme from Ephesians 5, verse 22, through the end of this section as well. Everyone lives as if they are living in Christ, as if they are in Christ. So you relate to your spouse as in Christ. You relate to your kids as in Christ. You relate to your husbands, your parents as in Christ, your masters, your bondservants and slaves as in Christ. Paul is changing something. This is, this is a radical perspective and heart shift in the lives of Christians. A couple of thoughts here with what we read here in this passage. And when you read it and listen to it, it is radical. Part of what he says is this. The bondservant is ultimately a bondservant of Christ. It is ultimately who that person belongs to is Jesus Christ. It is powerful that Paul does not exempt any of us in any of our conditions, whatever they may be. He doesn't exempt any of us from living as unto Christ. So there is no call for armed rebellion, slaves. I want you to kill your masters right now. That's not what Paul does. He says, here's our perspective. You belong to Christ. I want you to live as if you belong to Christ. In fact, Paul takes this word that would have been a word of stigma, a word of lower caste system in their world. He takes this word for bondservant or slave, and he uses it of himself over and over and over. So he says, I'm a slave of Christ. And he speaks of you and me as slaves to Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 is one of those passages. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, it's not about us, but about Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, your doulos, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. Paul says, this is the role I fill with Christ, and this is as much as I can the role that I fill when I relate to you. So this is part of what Paul calls the bondservant to live like. And then Paul, Paul puts the master under Christ. He puts the master under Christ. The master is now responsible to Jesus Christ. So and now instead of being the top rung of authority, notice part of what Paul tells masters, stop your threatening. You're not the one in authority anymore. Instead of being the top of the authority ladder, the master sitting in the congregation is equally responsible before God as everyone else who is there. And Paul says something powerful to masters here. Okay, so we've got a few verses about the bondservants or slaves. We've got a couple verses about masters. But what does Paul tell masters? He says, I want you to do the same to them. 
He just called bondservants to serve their masters as they would Christ. Paul just told masters who are now brand new Christians, I want you to serve your slaves as you would serve Jesus Christ. This is a powerful seed that is planted in the life of the church. Paul preaches a radical ethic of the gospel, the kingdom of God that begins to make its way to the church. Paul wants every Christian to treat slaves and former slaves as equal brothers and sisters in Christ. There is, in fact, an entire book of the Bible that is dedicated to this thought. Philemon chapter 1, it's just one chapter, <laughs> the book of Philemon. A slave by the name of Onesimus has run away, has found his way to the Apostle Paul. He's gotten saved under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Philemon, Onesimus's master, is someone the Apostle Paul knows. And so Paul sends this letter back with Onesimus back to, to Philemon, and he's telling Philemon, I'm sending Onesimus back to you so that you can learn to treat people differently. So that you can actually, what I think Paul is telling Philemon is, I need you to free your slave and treat him as a brother. Philemon verses 15 and 16 say this, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, not no longer as a bondservant, but much more than as a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Remember, guys, remember what Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 2, what the gospel of Jesus Christ does to the divisions that culture creates between us. Remember the dividing walls of hostility between Jews and Gentiles that existed in that day, between men and women, between masters and slaves that existed in that day in the middle of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is saying in Christ, he levels all of those walls. They don't exist here. In the church of Jesus Christ, in Ephesians 2.16, Paul says this, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And for some reason, there are still political and cultural movements in our culture that find racial distinctions, economic distinctions, class distinctions, and exploit them and turn them into perpetual hatred. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can't be a part of that. You can't. You can't follow Jesus Christ and hear what he has to say and hold to those things because here Christ kills that hostility. And guys, the church picked up that mantle. The church picked up the mantle, the seed that Paul plants here, the ethic that Paul plants here. The church picks it up. Hopefully you know about some of the big names in this world. When we speak of the big issue of masters and slaves and the existence of slavery inside of not just our culture, but every human culture in history, Hopefully we know some of the big names, guys like William Wilberforce. God gets a hold of his life, and he ends up dedicating his life to the two things that God gave him to do, the reformation of morals and the abolition of the slave trade. And almost single-handedly in England by 1833, he reaches the end of the official slave trade, right? So we get these great big luminaries. 
William Wilberforce was a committed Christian. His mentor was a committed Christian, a former slave trader by the name of John Newton who became a pastor, an Anglican pastor there in London who wrote the song. Does anybody know the song that John Newton wrote? Amazing Grace. So this is William Wilberforce's. This is his influence. This is what he does. The story of the abolitionists in Europe and in early America who actually lost a lot of their property and their status and sometimes their lives fighting against these kinds of things. Hopefully we know these kinds of stories. But I'm going to give you guys a few more stories, stories I guarantee you that unless you've tracked this down, you have never heard these things. That's what I'm good for. It's trivia. (laughs) We should know some things. Even among, and there's plenty of these times, even among the seasons of failures among the church and the people of Jesus Christ, there are ways in which the church has picked up this ethic, has planted this seed, and has worked for the end of slavery in all kinds of ways that would sometimes surprise us. So here's a few of those names and a few of those stories. One of the early popes of the church was Pope Callistus. He died in 223 A.D. He was born a slave. His Christian household freed him, educated him, gave him what opportunity he had in that life, and by the time he died, he was the leader of the church. Pope Callistus was a freed slave. A woman by the name of Bathilda. Now, you might be thinking it's a good name for a baby girl is Bathilda. You guys need to know this. When her husband, the king of the Franks, died, she became the regent of the Franks, sort of a temporary queen. She herself was a free slave, a freed slave. And she ruled the Franks and by 657 was working to end the slave trade among... 657 A.D., I'm not talking 1756, 657 A.D., she was already working toward the end of slavery amongst her people. At the end of the 700s, King Charlemagne... The Holy Roman Emperor was already beginning to oppose slavery and to defeat it inside of his own people group. A a bishop by the name of Bishop Agabard at the end of the 800s AD was also campaigning for the end of slavery and he was writing vociferously and voluminously about how every one of us is equal in the sight of God so no human being can ever own another human being. Again, this is in 1880. This is 800s AD. And then St. Anselm, the Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 1000s, campaigned for the end of slavery in all of Christendom. We know that there are failures in the church, but where the church picked this up, where the church knew what this meant, this is what we inherit. This is the seed now that you and I inherit. How is it going to grow? How's it going to bear fruit inside of our lives? Because it keeps bearing fruit inside of the church. When God can become preeminent in our lives and in our churches, guys, things around us can actually begin to change. We, this, is, this, is, this is the pattern Paul was after. We are changed by Christ. The places we go and the areas where we work and have influence can then also be changed. So these kinds of topics, Christian homes and households, And even how Christ calls us to be different from the reigning vision of culture around us. These topics, guys, are huge. They're huge in our personal relationships. 
I go through passages like this, guys, and I am aware, I am aware of how this strikes some of your ears and some of your situations and how impossible this feels, not just in the gigantic cultural scope of things, but just in what life is going to be like when you go home this afternoon. I know that. But this is the work of Christ in us. This is the comfort and the grace and the strength and the wisdom and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I know there can sometimes be so much more than we believe we can actually manage in our lives. So I want to finish thinking about a parable that Christ gave us. It's two sentences long. But this parable has been rolling through my head probably since the middle of April. Christ told us, the kingdom of God is like a seed. In fact, it's the smallest of all of the seeds in the garden. But when it is planted, it becomes the largest tree. I know sometimes it feels like there's only this much that we can do, that there's only this much that we can do when we go home today, when we go to work on Monday morning. We watch the world around us and we think there's only this much that I can do, but that's okay. In fact, this is, this is the miracle of the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When this much is actually the kingdom of God, it becomes the largest tree in the garden. Don't disparage the small beginnings, the small things that seem small to us. If it is the kingdom of God, it will become the largest tree in the garden, the most powerful thing in our lives. And maybe for many of us, that's just what happens in our home. Forget political change and international renewal. Maybe it's just what happens in our home. But this is the kingdom of God small seed, but it will become the largest of all the trees that are out there. Let's pray.